0: What are some of the greatest inventions that you can think of? The car? Sliced bread? bread. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Someone said air conditioning? Wi-Fi, internet? I think one one of them has to definitely be the DVR. You know what I'm talking about? Where you can record your TV shows without having to use a VHS tape? Who remembers recording TV on a VHS tape? Yeah, I still remember that. It's the worst. No, DVR, you can record your show, you can skip commercials, you can watch it on your own uh, you know, convenient, convenient time frame. There's nothing worse than you know tuning into a program after it has begun and you have no context of where it is or what's going on and you're just kind of lost. And I, and I am fully aware that there are some of you this morning who are guests to our church who are finding themselves smack dab in the middle of a broadcast that is a sermon series that I've been preaching for several weeks now, and it's okay if you feel a little bit lost, all right? But my goal is to, is to preach a message in such a way that you're, you're able to kind of keep up with what's going on. I've been preaching for several weeks on a series called Influencers, and I've been trying to, to look biblically as, as Christians, what is, what is the influence or the impact that we are to have as the people of God on the world around us as salt and light, and so we've been kind of working through that for a couple of weeks. We're continuing that uh, theme here this morning. If, if you yourself are a Christian, I, I hope and pray and trust that this message will be a challenge uh, for you. But if you're not, if you're if you were invited here uh, by a, a, a family friend or a neighbor or, or you know, somebody that, that is, is here but is not necessarily a believer, that's okay too. I hope that this message gives you a little bit of, of an insight into what makes uh, Christians tick. Uh, what are perspective is, what what our motivation is, and the things that uh, we seek to be and do for the sake of Christ. So if you would, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. It's toward the end of your New Testament. If you grabbed one of our guest Bibles back there, uh, you're welcome to get one now even if you don't have a Bible or would like to follow along in the translation that I'm preaching from. Uh, We'll be on page 980. I'm going to read just a few verses from the third chapter of, of 1 Peter here from the New Living Translation. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 and ending in verse 17. The Apostle Peter says, Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about the hope your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Now, I don't know if you felt it I feel it every time I read this passage, there at the very beginning of it, Peter says a couple things that that seem on the surface, at least, to be sort of contradictory with one another. If you look in verse 13, he he asks a question. He says, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? This is an expression that's similar to the one we hear from Paul in Romans chapter 8, where he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And these are, of course, rhetorical questions. Questions along the lines of the kind that you and I ask one another sometimes. where We're not necessarily expecting an answer. The, the question is more of a statement. You're making a point. And the point that both Peter and Paul are making with these questions is basically, it's an expression of confidence that the Lord will protect the righteous. He's there by your side if you're seeking to live a life for him. But then he follows that that question in verse 14 with a statement where he says, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And so we're left with sort of a question. Okay, Peter, which is it? Are are you confident in the Lord's protection of the righteous? Or are you confident in the likelihood of unjust suffering for the righteous? To which Peter would say, yes. It's not an either or sort of thing. It is a both and. As you and I have noted before over the years, and and the rest of you know just from your own experience, that Christians are not guaranteed exemption from suffering in this life. Despite the the latest best-selling Christian novel you'll find on the bookshelves, you will face suffering. But though you're not guaranteed exemption from suffering and, and even persecution, the Christian is guaranteed God's presence Within it, And that's the comfort that that you and I as Christians find in this world. That even though we can expect troubles and hardships, we know that no ultimate harm can come to us. When your life is hid with Christ in God, there is a a certain type of security that comes with living life in him. Belonging to him and, and trusting in him. Evil in your life is present, but it need not prevail. It doesn't have the final word over your life. And I know at times when you as a Christian are, are suffering for doing good, or suffering for your faith, for, for living a life for Christ in a hostile world, it might feel like evil is going to have the final word, doesn't it? Especially in the moment. You're wondering, how, how will this, this, this trial ever come to an end? Will this heart, Will I ever be able to endure this hardship? Is this going to define the rest of my life? And it's at times like that where we need the truth and the comfort of God's word to remind us that no. Evil does not have the final say. It does not have the final word. Because of God's presence, and because of God's power, and because of God's promises, we need not succumb to it when we're facing it. Well, that's not a popular message, I don't think, in, in many circles of contemporary Christianity. You know, those, those peddlers of prosperity that tell you that, that blessing, you know, it's incompatible with suffering. Right? If you are suffering, it's, it's not because you're in a broken world and you're standing with Jesus, it's because, well, maybe you don't have enough faith. And we've been, we've been denouncing prosperity type of teaching in this church as long as I've been here and beyond. That's, that's completely contrary to the whole tenor of the scriptures. It's contrary to everything Jesus promised his disciples. In this world, you will face trouble. He prays the Father, don't take them out of the world, I'm sending them into the world, Would you protect them in the world as they face the things of the world? The New Testament, as a whole, views suffering for the sake of righteousness as an occasion for blessing. It's not the opposite of blessing. It's an occasion for blessing. Look no further than the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus lays down the principle there, all the way back in Matthew chapter 5, which, not ironically, is where this whole sermon series began talking about being salt and light, being witnesses in the world, being agents in the world of God, the very, first, the very verses preceding those, those verses are the ones I'm reading to you now where Jesus talks about being persecuted for righteousness' sake. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for that reason, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Ha, tell me where prosperity gospel fits in that verse right there. Blessed are you when you are persecuted For righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Should you mope and feel sorry for yourself? Should you get angry with God? Resentful towards your persecutors when these things happen? No, Jesus says, rejoice. (laughs) Be glad when these things happen. Why? Well, for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so Peter too, he too is convinced as he writes to a church in his time that is undergoing persecution. Peter is just as convinced as as he could be that even though the righteous will face evil in this world, God will not allow the righteous to be overcome by evil, but rather will bless them as they suffer for the name of Jesus. So the question then is, if these things are true, that we will face suffering, we will face persecution, but those, those things do not have the final say in your life, and God is promising his presence and power, what should our primary concern be when we're faced with these things? Well, according to Peter, I'll tell you what it's not going to be, or what it, not, what it, it uh, shouldn't be, and that is we should not be focused on the, the threats that are made against us or the, the very threat of suffering and persecution in general. He says it in verse 14, don't worry or be afraid of that. And Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 10 in verse 28 when he says, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. And I wonder how many Christians have compromised or failed in their witness for Jesus for fear of the world. It's, a, it's something we've, we've gone back to multiple times throughout this series, because it seems to be a, a, a prevailing theme in many of our lives as we assess the ways that we are allowing God to use us to be witnesses for him in the world. How many of us have failed to be everything called, he's called us to be because of fear? Because we're afraid of all manner of things. What are some of the things that you fear? I mean, it could be anything from, from uh, you know, uh, fear of an, of an extreme form of persecution that might result in your death. And by the way, that may not be your situation right here in, Ameri- in North America, but certainly it's the situation for many Christians around the world. People are being martyred at this very moment for the name of Jesus. It could be fear of something extreme like that, or it could, or it could be just something... You know, fear of something mundane and ordinary and simple as, as just someone looking down on you or criticizing you or, or labeling you as something. Or the common thing these days is someone wanting to cancel you. And there's all manner of things to fear. I mean, Peter himself, on the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, denied even knowing who Jesus was. Why? Well, he was afraid of being associated with Jesus. He was afraid of, of his life being... Put into jeopardy because of his association with Jesus. And so he gets it. He knows what it's like to face these things in life. Instead, he says, you need to have the right perspective about these things. Suffering is not the opposite of blessing. Suffering is the opportunity for blessing. So don't fear the ones who have no ultimate say about your life. Instead, verse 15, what should you do? You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. That should be your primary concern as Christians going into a world that that doesn't like your message, a world that is hostile to your worldview, to your belief system, to your value system, hostile to the one that you are loyal to, the one that you represent. You shouldn't worry about that. What should your primary concern be? You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. Literally, it says, sanctify Christ as Lord of your hearts. Which, by the way, is a quote from Isaiah chapter 8, where Isaiah says, make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He is the one you should fear. He is the one who should make you tremble. Isaiah was calling the people of God in his day to not fear the things the world fears, or to fear as the world fears, or to even fear the world itself. No, he's saying fear and trust in Yahweh alone. He's the one who should make you tremble. And yet, in the very next verse, verse 14 of Isaiah 8, I love these, these, these seemingly contrasting things that are juxtaposed to one another. Fear Yahweh alone. He should be the one that makes you tremble. And yet, in the very next verse, he will keep you safe. Isn't that interesting? That the, the only one that the people of God are ever called to fear and respect and tremble before in all of life is the very one who's providing for all of your needs. It's kind of like a father and a son, isn't it? I've told this story before, and if I've told it from here, I apologize. I, I can't remember if I have. If I have, it's been several years. But there have been times when I've had to, to go up to, a, you know, to, to the, the kid's bedroom at night when they're supposed to be asleep and they're carrying on, not you, the, the other ones. And they're carrying on, and, and they're not obeying their dad, and, and I've had to address them. And, and they have all the excuses. Well, I was, you know, my imagination was going wild, and I was imagining, you know, this terrible, scary thing happening, and, and then, or this thing hiding here. And, and I have to convince them that there's nothing to be afraid of but what? Me. Now, you're laughing, but I, I mean it. There is, there is a, a caution and a promise in there, isn't there? I mean, the promise is as long as you belong to me and you are under my roof and under my protection, you have no, there's nothing in this world that you have to be afraid of. I, I will stop anything that would seek to come and get you. The, those imaginations you have, they're not real and the real threats in the world have to get through me so you have you can rest in peace you can go to sleep you can close your eyes and dream about you know whatever wonderful thing that, that makes you happy whatever you know thing that brings you delight and you can do so with peace in your heart because the only thing you need to fear is the one that's offering to protect you and take care of your life and that's what god through his prophet is saying to his people That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. That's what Peter is saying to the church. That's what God is saying to us. You don't have to worry about the people out there. You don't have to worry about the threats, however real or manufactured in your imagination. Your only fear is the Lord, who happens to be the very one who's providing all of your needs. The very one who who has taken you as his own. who's who's pledged to be by your side, to walk with you through good and bad, through thick or thin, who, who demonstrated his love for you by offering up his son on the cross that you might live. He is the one who should make you tremble. He will keep you safe. Jesus echoes that in Matthew 10. Again, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body but cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So there's some really strong, you know, exhortations there from the Lord about who to fear. But, but just like Isaiah, he follows that up by saying this in the very next few verses. What is the price of two sparrows? What, is a sparrow, what are sparrows worth? A, a copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. In other words, his eyes are on every minute detail of his creation. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So what? So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. You hear hear the same line of thinking from Isaiah to Jesus to Peter. Don't fear the world. Fear and respect God. Set him apart in your hearts as the only one whose opinion and judgment matters. Peter himself learned to lose his fear of man. He stood in the the light of that charcoal fire and denounced his Lord three times. But a short time later in Acts chapter 5, when his life was on the line, when his persecutors were demanding silence and as it pertains to the things of Jesus, he replied what? We must obey who? God. Rather than man. You see, Peter learned what it took to overcome his fear of people. And I want to tell you that confessing the Lordship of Christ with your heart's devotion is the only way to break the grip of fear in the face of persecution and suffering. And once that grip of fear is broken, well, then you and I can finally become free to be his witnesses in the world. See, so you see how this all connects. Don't be afraid of their threats. Fear only Christ. Set him apart as holy, as, as Lord of all of your life. In the very next breath, verse 15, look at it again. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Always be ready to explain it. There's a a quote that I've seen floating around on social media over the years. I've heard it in messages, and and frankly, I may have been guilty of, of sharing it at some point. So you're welcome to navigate through the archive of my life and ministry that's floating in cyberspace around there and try to find, you know, find it and you know, put it back on my face for what I'm about to say. But there's a quote that's been floating around that, that needs to be addressed and we need to stop sharing it. Okay? It is a quote that has been ascribed to St. Francis of Assisi. You may have heard it before. I'm almost certain you've heard, heard it before. And it goes something like this. Supposedly, he once said, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Have you heard that before? Have you heard that before? I want to know how many of you have heard that in some form or fashion before. All right, now put your hands down. Don't raise your hands for this, but I want to know, have you shared that before? You may have, and it's okay, but I'm telling you, don't, don't anymore. All right, don't share that anymore, because not only is there no historical evidence that Francis of Assisi ever even said that, but it actually kind of runs contrary to the things he actually did say. So it's not being very faithful to, to the history or to the character of the man that it's ascribed to. So stop sharing that. Now, Francis, he was not the type who, who kept his mouth shut and let you know, his, his wonderful you know, deeds do the talking. No, he was a passionate preacher. Think along the lines of someone like Jonathan Edwards, you know, someone who's known for, for being you know, dynamic and explosive and, and people that would come and be, they'd be cut to the heart and they would be moved by, by the spectacle that, that he was. It was reported that he would often preach in multiple cities in a single day, just traveling and preaching and traveling and preaching, sometimes so animated and passionate in, in his delivery that his, it was said his feet moved as if he was dancing. So he's sort of like the dancing preacher. You know, he's dancing. He's, there's fire in his bones for the gospel. As one biographer noted, his words were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit penetrating the marrow of the heart. Now, I don't know if the heart has marrow, but you get the point. The innermost part of the heart was cut by his preaching. And I get the sentiment of the quote falsely ascribed to him. I get it. Its, its intention is to highlight what? Well, the importance of living a good, a good life, of, of witnessing with, with, with how you live Living out the gospel message in every day of life. And I I wholeheartedly affirm that and agree with that. But the problem with the quote, aside from it not being true to history or true to the, the man's character, but it has the effect, in my opinion, of placing greater value in proclaiming the gospel by example than with actual words. And I wonder how many Christians have been comforted by that quote because that gives them some sort of excuse or validation to remain silent for Jesus. I won't speak up for Jesus because Francis of Assisi says that it's better that I not use words or only use words as a last resort. Does that align with what the Scriptures say of you as, as Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth? Francis would never say such a thing, and neither would Peter. Now Peter says right here, in light of all these things we've said about the reality of suffering in the world, that it is not con- contradictory to blessing, in fact it's an opportunity for blessing, that you should not be afraid of those who cannot harm your soul, you should only fear Christ and set him aside as holy in your heart. In light of all these things, he says, and this is sort of the, the implication of, all, of everything he's been saying to this point, always be ready to explain your hope as a Christian. In every situation, to every audience, however great or small, friendly or hostile, be ready, be prepared to give an answer, to give a defense for the hope you have every time you're asked Friends, you cannot preach the gospel. You cannot share the good news. You cannot be his witnesses. You cannot be his influencers that he's called you to be in this world without words. Words are indispensable. The gospel is inherently verbal. Romans chapter 10 verse 14. How can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him if they have never been told about him? How does the world ever have any hope of coming to Christ if without faith? And how can they ever hope to have faith if they have not heard why you have faith? With your words, not just with your silence. Words are indispensable to witness. And, of course, so is holiness. It's not pick and choose what you would rather do. It's, it's all of the above. And so he'll say, yes, be ready to explain your hope. And of course, do it in the right way with gentleness and respect. And there's a lot of Christians who are sharing their hope not that way, and we need to hear the qualification of the command. There's a certain way to share and to use words in the world. It's not, to, not in a disrespectful way. Prove you wrong. We talked about this two weeks ago. I'm going to grind you into the dust with my superior logic and argumentation. I'm going to make it a spectacle, not just of your belief system, but of you. That's not the Christian way. Jesus never did that once to a single human being. No, Jesus is always speaking truth and love. Jesus is always gentle and respectful. Gentleness is not weak, gentle is not weakness. No, he was strong. He was bold. He was clear. But he he spoke truth and love. And you're called to do the same thing. Yes. Explain your hope. Do it the right way with gentleness and respect. And keep your conscience clear. Peter's not picking between words or actions. He's not saying, you know, you are the this group, you know, you're the ones who will, you know, share your hope with words. You are the ones who share your your hope and your faith with actions. He's saying the same. He's saying both to all. Explain your faith. Keep your conscience clear. Now, in the New Testament, the conscience serves as something akin to a a character witness. A witness that, that stands by your actions before God, before the world, before oneself, when he says, you know, keep your conscience clear, he's not talking about the confidence that comes from merely having your past, you know, wrongdoings, you know, forgiven and cleansed. And by the way, there is a, a sense in which Christ offers that to you today. You know, if you, if you have, have, like the rest of us, have been living in a life of sin, you violated what you know to be wrong and within your own heart, that's, that God has placed that sense of right and wrong, that, that innate sense of morality in your life, and if you have violated it with, without exemption. Every single person in here has fallen short of even their own standard of what is right and wrong at some point in their life. But you've lived this life of, of unrighteousness in the, in the sight of a holy God, and he offers, through his son, the opportunity for that record to be wiped clean. And you could stand before him, innocent of past wrongdoing because the consequences of your wrongdoing have been laid upon his son. Jesus has taken your sin, your guilt, your shame upon himself. And when we come to him and confess our sins and put our trust in Christ, he takes our record and he wipes it clean based on everything that he has done and on nothing that you and I have done. But that's not what what Peter is talking about here. He's not just talking about the clean conscience of having, you know, your past record of wrongdoing wiped clean. He is talking about the ongoing confidence that comes from right living. Holiness. Living an upright life before God and man. He's been talking about it all throughout his his letter. And in the next letter, he'll continue the theme. He's talking about holiness. A life that pleases God a life that's filled with the power in the heart and the character of God. a life of doing good," he'll go on to say, A life that puts your accusers to shame. Friends, your words mean nothing if your lifestyle contradicts them. And you know that's true. And I wonder if that's why some of you are silent because you know that your words and your deeds do not align. I had a friend who was a youth leader back in another life that I was at a, a party with. And I was the only person there that wasn't inebriated. And, I'm, and I was, it was hard, because I was a very young Christian. I was immature as a, just a, a, an a upper-level teenager, and I... And I I knew that to give in to the temptation around me was to, was to you know, bring my witness into, into disrepute. And I didn't want to, you know, bring shame to the name of Jesus. But it was hard. It was, the pressure was crazy. And, and I was crying because of of the inner you know, turmoil, and conflict in my own heart. And this, this friend of mine who was a, a, a leader of teenagers in his local church who was as drunk as the rest of them was telling me, you know, was telling me to, to not worry about those feelings that I had. And I said, well, how, how, how can I go back to the, the people that I'm responsible to, the people in my own high school and, and who look up to me as a leader, and how can I look them in the face and say, you know, don't behave a certain way while I'm behaving that certain way. And his response was, well, just don't tell them not to do that. And I knew, even as a, young, as a young Christian, how ridiculous that line of thinking was. Now, I know he's grown from that. I know he has. But in the moment, that he was essentially saying, remain silent so that your words and your, your actions don't contradict. And I wonder how many of us in here know we are to, to confess Christ with our words, but we, we know very good and well that our actions don't align up with our, with our words your words mean nothing if your lifestyle contradicts them. Some Christians are silent because of fear. Others are silent, as we've just noted, because they know their lives don't measure up. Others have a whole lot to say, but their lives don't show any evidence of what they're saying is to be true. I think we could summarize Peter here by saying something more like a different quote that's that has floated around over social media over the years. It's kind of old school. Uh, It's a little cliche. It's not something that I say on a regular basis, but I sure like it a whole lot more than falsely ascribing uh, a quote to someone who never said it. I think we could summarize Peter by saying something more like, talk the talk and walk the walk. Remember that? Was it like in the 90s when that was all the rage? The t-shirts with that printed out, those before social media. We didn't have internet back in those days, but we had our t-shirts with our fancy Christian slogans. And I know talk the talk, walk the walk was one of those things back in the day. And I'll tell you, that's something Francis actually did kind of say, in essence. He didn't say preach the gospel with your life and occasionally use words. He did say something more like preach the gospel and make sure your life matches your words. Talk the talk and walk the walk. Live such a life before God and man that in the very things in which you are slandered, those who revile your behavior in Christ will be put to shame. It's not live a certain way and maybe use words if you need to, nor is it words matter but your actions don't. It's be his witnesses in both word and in all of your life. That's the ticket, friends, to really being salt and light. That's what the world needs to see and hear. That's what all who worship Christ as Lord in their lives must be and do. So how does, how does your walk measure up to that today? It's the beautiful and painful thing about the scriptures is that they are almost like a mirror at times. I don't know if that makes total sense, but you get my point. You look in it, And it shows you what you really are. It exposes you. It calls you out. It holds you accountable. It challenges you. But it's also a hopeful invitation. God's God's commands are His promises. He's not going to ask you or challenge you or command something of you that He will not then supply the grace you need to be and do. So as we look into the into the the reflecting lens of the scriptures and we assess our own lives, where are you as it pertains to all these things? Is Jesus set apart in your heart as Lord? That's a man, that's a theme that keeps coming up over and over and over again because it's the, the starting point of all of this. Is he Lord of your life or not? Have you sanctified Christ as the only one to submit your whole life to at the deepest place of who you are, in the very marrow of your heart? Or are you worried still about what people might think or say or do? Only the fear of the Lord has the liberating power over the crippling fear of man. Are you prepared and even eager to explain with all people at all times your hope in Christ? When when we finish here in just a few moments and and, and exit the building and go back out into life in the world, well, are you at the ready in every situation at all times to, to say a word for Jesus? With gentleness and respect, of course in truth and love. Are are you prepared for that? What's the worst that could happen? God promises you that suffering for righteousness' sake is an opportunity for blessing and witness. So welcome it. Doesn't mean you have to go looking for it. (laughs) But if God permits it in your life, if God leads you to it, Peter says that, It is better, verse 17, to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants. And it just may be that God wants you to suffer. I couldn't sound more contradictory to the the folks on your TV screens when I say that. God might want you to suffer. He's not going to abandon you to it, but maybe he has blessing and witness in store for it, for you and for those around you in it. Are you prepared and eager to share Christ in that situation? Is your conscience clear? Does your lifestyle undercut your witness? Or is it marked by a holiness that breathes fire into your words? Nothing empowers effective witness like clean hands and a pure heart. Church, you are called to be in the world but not of the world, You, you are, are no longer from the world, but Christ has called you to give yourselves away to the world and for the world. The world will despise you because it despises God. But you are called to join Christ in his self-giving love for the very people whose sins resulted in his cross. You have nothing to fear except the one who gave his life away for you. So take comfort as the influencers that you're called to be. Take comfort in in the things Peter will say at the very end of the next chapter where he says this, if you suffer in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this morning, for the, the sun and the heat and the the opportunity to gather as your people lord it's just a, a a joy to belong to you and and to count ourselves as part of the the body of Christ and i pray god that the fear of the lord would be present in each of our lives today that we would stop being afraid of of things that that can that might be able to harm our bodies or our, our reputations, or our feelings, but can never, ever touch our soul. Lord, may we worship the one who has, who has the power to destroy both body and soul. May we worship you completely without any holding anything back. You alone are Lord, Jesus. Be Lord over all of us and use us in this world to be your influencers, to be salt and light at whatever expense to ourselves speaking words about you in gentleness and respect, in living upright lives, clean consciences, empowered by your spirit to be holy as you are holy. Lord, may we be your witnesses in both word and in every aspect of life for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name, Amen.